Welcome back to the Dissociative Table podcast. I'm Alex Furches. I won't do much of an introduction today because that's contained within the conversation here. This is the second part of a conversation with Wendy Beharry, arguably the most prominent schema therapist today and an expert on narcissistic personality disorder. She remarked that this was the fun part of the conversation. I agree because no interview she's done, she remarked, has gone into literary interpretation as relevant to treatment, but it fits very well into schema therapy as a psychodynamic mode of treatment. And I think it fits into every mode of treatment if you're dealing with complex trauma. I only wish we had had more time. Ms. Beharry addresses archetypes of the unconscious that fit into a schema understanding of covert narcissistic personality disorder especially, and complex trauma in general. Importantly, she addresses how to be sympathetic to the narcissistic client while not repeating maladaptive attachment styles. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. So this is great because you already, you already, um, in the last segment, you already went into this, but, um, I, uh, have been thinking, in fact, I, I just, um, was writing a little bit. I don't know who's going to read it or if it'll ever get published or anything, but on, uh, the parts of self that I see in clients and then my consultees clients, all of whom are working with EMDR through a, uh, an ego state therapy model for the most part um, and the theory of structural dissociation of the personality is the kind of the world that I come from. But nonetheless, there always seems to be a part of self that and the, the, the um, I know that Yacht Ponksep's work is something that, you know, like um, affective neuroscience is, is something that like everybody's quoting, but hardly anybody's read. You know, it's like, it's cool to throw his name in, but nonetheless, this idea is that, uh, the, as I point to my brainstem here for, uh, those of you who aren't <laughs> viewing, uh, the, uh, what's called the fight circuit as if that's the, it, how human life is supposed to be a fight. Nonetheless, when fighting doesn't work, there, uh, is a fuse that blows. And of course, uh, a, uh, the idea that this is how a fight part is formed. Um, not that there's one type of fight part, but can be many according to many different experiences. And it seems that one type of fight part, especially the type that can despise a part of self that chose to submit as much as it despises the abuser, that it was trying to protect that same submissive part from, takes on a like a Faustian bargain with the abuser where the only way to be powerful is to be somewhat like the abuser. Mm. And the, the, the idea is in the, in the Faust kind of archetype, um, Mephistopheles represents like what they would, I don't know if this is a, a term that, that you buy into uh, because it's, it's kind of a catchphrase, but the, the malignant narcissist, like Mephistopheles is the ultimate malignant narcissist. So bite the hand that feeds you. I've been dealt a bad hand. You burn me down. I'll burn you down all in the service of hiding from the personal responsibility of owning flaws. Of course, in the case of a child, personal responsibility has no, this is, this is not something that is guilt or innocence. This is a brain injury, but moving over to the world of traumatization that archetype 
is still present. And it appears to me more and more that that sort of part occurs in the more complex cases of trauma where the perpetrator has placed himself in the place of God in a way, but a very petty God where you can only be good enough in a, in a certain way. And um, I just wanted to throw that out there and let you riff on it because <laughs> I don't know if I'm nuts or not, but you know, a lot of my clients think they're nuts until they hear that. Yeah. Pretty much the, uh, 90% of my clients see demons and dragons and other things that just want to watch the world burn uh, when they dream or even in everyday life. And I was wondering what your experience of that is, especially from a schema perspective as opposed to parts perspective. Well, I think from a schema perspective, you know, one of the things that probably acts as the internal spokesperson for these schemas, these these traits, these strong, intense emotional beliefs, which is what schemas, well, we talk about them as early maladaptive because they're coming right out of unmet needs. So what's the, the vocalizing piece is what we think of as the inner critic, mm. this internal messenger that is constantly reminding the child and then later on the adolescent, the young adults, et cetera, um, you're going to mess it up. Don't mess it up. Mm -hmm. Try harder. Do better. Do more. Are you kidding me? What's wrong with you? So something in, in that tone. And that gets pasted against this sense of injustice. Mm -hmm. Right. You have Just, an, right. an enraged child who never had a safe place, never had a safe place to express the rage and the frustration that a child in a safe, healthy mm -hmm. home can safe, healthy home child and say, I hate you. Right? <laughs> like, but, well, like, like Mike, I have a four-year-old and uh, sounds like last night to me. Yeah. Uh, but right. You know, he can, but when you can't, that becomes the voice. I'm hearing the voice of the perpetrator and the injustice oh. is Faust. Um, he's the perfect professor and he studied science and alchemy. And this is Goethe's version, but you know, he, he, the thing that he can't have is childhood innocence and Eve is essentially he's resentful for the whole fall of man thing. Mm -hmm. And ironically, he turns to the guy who's responsible for the whole fall of man thing to remedy the whole fall of man thing, because you know what he says, screw it to burn it all down. I was wronged says Mephistopheles. Come on, come on, bro. Let's go do it together. And by the end of book two of Faust, which is internally boring, I was forced to read it in college. Uh, <laughs> the world is burning and Mephistopheles is laughing the whole way. Mm -hmm. um, that sounds a heck of a lot like you're like the child you just described. You have an impeccable memory for this. And I love the metaphors. I was forced to read it too and can't remember it as well as you do. <laughs> but you're ringing bells in my head as you're speaking. Um, yeah. I mean, people will often ask me the question, do people with NPD, do harm intentionally oh. coming from, you know, I'll show you, you're going to get yours. Mm. And I say, well, it could come out of their mouth that way, certainly. And it may even feel like that's the motivational driver. But what I often find is the true motivational driver is this fierce sense of injustice, unfairness, and I will do whatever it takes to protect 
my ego. So mm. it's not so much like I've got to hurt you, but if I've got to hurt you to protect my ego, well, I'm doing that. So it's like this chance, this last chance for this little child who had no voice, who had no safety, who had no space to express the frustration, mm. the fear, the anger, the angst of living in this toxic environment. There was no place for that. And now I'm entitled to, and I can, and I will. Mm-hmm. And so you get that kind of self-righteous arrogance wrapped around it. Worked really hard to produce that. Well, at the same time, you know, the internal melody that keeps humming along is try harder, do more, do better, not good enough. Mm-hmm. Janet called it a substitute action. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, I, I think that these, I think he may have called that, a, a, that sort of thing. I, I think he may have come up with that term before Freud came up with displacement, which the terms are not equivalent in the slightest, but you can, you know, there's sort of an application for both of those, but a substitute action, meaning um, an incomplete action in trauma time, because if you do choose to fight, whether that is um, represented by a feeling in the throat, that's, I would like to say something, but if I do, something worse will happen, mm. you know, well, or or a feeling in the fist, like I want to beat the heck out of that parent, but I'm tiny. And the last time that happened, it didn't go so well. Um, and a fuse blows. Mm-hmm. Um, this action can't be completed and the fuse blows. And so it's interminably attempting to complete itself because we're goal-driven creatures, right? Stick a fork in our food so that it'll go in our stomach or our heart beats or whatever, or we make plans to go to Harvard or whatever. Um, is that is that your understanding of it from a schema perspective that this is this this especially the covert narcissism that the that this type of person with NPD is trying to resolve something in the past as opposed to trying to hurt someone in the present. Yes, 100%. Yeah, 100%. That it's about, without without knowledge of that, Mm -hmm. that it's an effort to resolve those unmet needs, those hurts, those injustices, the unfairness, to release that angry, enraged child, to have an advocate, to protect that ego, to avoid that shame. So you can imagine, you can see the constructs, right, of these different states, Mm -hmm. which you were talking about ego states. We talk about schema modes. Mm -hmm. There's detachment. I can shut down and put the wall up and dismiss you. There's overcompensation. I'll show you. I'll charm you. I'll entertain you. I'll fight. I'll be entitled. I'll control. I'll dominate. I'll be Mm -hmm. self-righteous. And there's approval seeking. You know, I can try to impress you and win you over. There's a demanding internal critic, and that state is hard to rub away because it becomes adopted as it's my edge. It's what makes me good at what I do. So it's hard to help them to really abort that mission or in favor of something that might be a little kinder and gentler, because then they're back in childhood where that was dismissed as a sign of weakness. So it's very complex work, but to your question, yes. I mean, all of that is about how the past is living in the present and how so much of these reactions are attempts to try to reconcile that, which is why we have a model that 
works to use the imagination to rescript, to reparent, to reconcile those issues. Mm-hmm. That is the mm-hmm. goal in schema therapy. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Uh, Vanderhart, um, in the, the the one of his in his treatment manual, based on the theory of structural dissociation and the personality um, suggests um, that traditional approaches to treating non-traumatic NPD be used with um, someone who has NPD that is not of traumatic origin, but yet someone who is highly traumatized. He suggests that someone can have NPD, yet the NPD does not relate to um, the thing that might cause them to have a, a complex PTSD or something of that of that nature. Um, but more to what we're speaking about here, he suggests that that same model, uh, something such as schema therapy, can be used with that Mephistophelian perspective fight part that has that entitled perspective and uh, this is where um, most of my conversations with my colleague go. So I wonder if you could, uh, I wonder if dissociative parts of the self have their own very uh, more simple schemas, which I have very little understanding of. I don't know if there's that much crossover, but I, I hope to... Um, to, to continue the dialogue. I hope to have Dr. Vanderhart on this, um, on this program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to give the last, the last word to you. Um, what, 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 what's your advice to a busy clinician who is struggling with a victim of chronic childhood traumatization who is, for instance, hurting their partner in a, a, a narcissistic way, maybe not physically, maybe maybe even worse. Um, how can they have sympathy for this person, but yet still emphasize the role of personal responsibility? Great question. That's a great question. So the first thing I would say is clear the decks, take care of yourself so that you can make sure that it's not your little child who is sitting in the treatment therapist chair. Can't do it when you're so activated and overwhelmed and they will activate us and overwhelm us because of these fight modes, right? These ways that they can show up that are sort of ready to dodge and charm and monopolize and interrupt and So you've got to really have a clear head. You've got to have a clear narrative in front of you of who this person is or might be. Superimpose the face of a child over the face of the person sitting in front of you because that will enable you to, and it doesn't have to be sympathy. It just needs to be empathy. You need to get it. So the more you equip yourself with an understanding of the once upon a time and how narcissists are put together, you really get it there's less room for personalization. There's more room to be a real human in the room because that's what it takes. Get rid of the therapeutic language, Mm -hmm. get rid of the gross intellectualization. You've got to be raw. You've got to be real. You've got to be able to say, why are you talking to me like that? Mm -hmm. What's going Mm -hmm. on? 
That was pretty critical. No, really, it was. No, it was. It was. Why are you interrupting me again? It got to be ready to confront. So it's, I get it. I know this is what you were taught. It's not your fault. I'm not blaming you. But, and then the confrontation. But this is why you're having trouble. This is why your marriage is about to fail. And they're usually mm -hmm. only sitting with you because they've been forced to come to treatment under most in most conditions. Mm -hmm. Got to care for you. Get clarity on that story. Get clarity on NPD. Be a real human in the room because there's beautiful work that can be done, but it's hard work. Mm. Hard work. Well, thank you so very much again for uh, your time, Pleasure. and thank you for your work and uh, your your writing. Um, hope you have hope to have you on again sometime, and um, some of your schema colleagues very soon. I hope so too. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate it. Good to be with you. A big thanks to Wendy for being on this program and having this conversation. We both wished that it could have kept going in this direction of how literature and mythology can inform an understanding of the treatment of NPD and complex trauma, but we just plain ran out of time. I hope to have on other guests who can address this sort of thing, but of course, guests who outright reject it. Um, and so on that note, since this is a rather short episode, I'd like to quote some of my uh, favorite books, influential works, um, which continue these ideas. Um, so the first is um, Steelboom Vanderhart's Treating Trauma-Related Dissociation. And so some might say that the following quote is an excellent reason to ignore archetypes and mythology in the treatment of chronic childhood traumatization. Authors say therapists must not engage in psychic equivalents in regard to dissociative parts. That is, they must not confuse the patient's dissociative parts that are manifestations of extreme non-realization with actual people who should be treated separately and differently from each other. End quote, which is to say the therapist shouldn't play into non-realization. Could the understanding of dissociative parts as archetypal representations common to human culture play into that? Well, I suppose if you believe that, you haven't read the rest of this work. Because the authors follow in the same work by saying realization must include accepting the darker side of life, the pain and struggle, the lack of control and the uncertainty, the unfairness and vulnerability, and the defeat and despair we all encounter. Saying that the arrogance of that is, quote, it is often easier to see our patients in all or nothing terms as victims rather than complex individuals who also, like all humans, have the capacity to hurt, or to be sadistic, entitled, or enraged. Man, did when, when do you speak about that? Um, that is, and that's end quote, but that is to see our clients as people who have a place in the great human drama of literature and myth. I would point out that you won't find a neglect of this in primitive cultures. And we ignore this to our own peril as well. We may not have the lions of cultures 10,000 years ago. Our lions are more civilized. And I believe uh, 
capable of greater evil. Nietzsche predicted shockingly accurately the horrors of the Holocaust, World War II, um, and the gulags by pointing out the results of the neglect of this uh, mythology and this sort of thing. Viktor Frankl, a uh, Holocaust survivor himself in Man's Search for Meaning, is saying that this is the fundamental trauma of humanity the loss of narrative meaning. And as another of my favorite authors, uh, Lev Vygotsky points out in Thought and Language, narrative is inherently symbolic. So at some risk, I bring another author. <laughs> when I uh, entered a poster competition in graduate school, I was told by my advisor, if you want to win, don't mention Carl Jung. And I find out later that uh, one of my great mentors was told that about his PhD dissertation and actually told, until you have tenure, don't mention Jung. Now, tragically, I won the poster competition, but that's what got me into this industry to begin with, is that my first ever client in my graduate practicum had DID, and I was reading Carl Jung at the same time. So Jung writes about these things, writing during the Cold War. If for a moment we look at mankind as one individual, we see that it is like a man carried away by unconscious powers. He is dissociated like a neurotic with the iron curtain marking the line of division. It is our own shadow that glowers at us over the iron curtain. That's end quote. As the research that Dr. Manfield um, quotes in another episode indicates um, it appears that dissociative disorders result, yes, from horrible events, but the strange symptoms are the result of the inability to tell the story, which is to say neglect. And so Jung continues, we lay ourselves open to every infection because we are doing practically the same things they are, which is to say mirroring the phobias of complex trauma by neglecting symbolism and mythology, only with the additional disadvantage that we neither see nor want to understand what we were doing under the cloak of good manners, end quote. So, someone might ask, which is more important, truth and meaning or symptom reduction? I think that's a misleading question, personally. Why would we separate these things, I think, is Jung's point. And I hope that's the dialogue that can, can, can continue on this podcast. I'd like to point out something behind me, which is a drawing that my four-year-old son did at his preschool. I said, what is this? It's beautiful. And he said, it's a dragon. I said, well, he's, is that the thing in the center? And he said, no, that's his pupil. This is his eye. The dragon was too big to fit on the paper. <laughs> I didn't tell him to do that. That came out of his own mind. Our clients were traumatized as children and unable to tell the story. And I believe they used the archetypes of the unconscious to adopt a tragic mythological interpretation of why they didn't deserve to matter. 
should this be rejected or repaired? I think that what my son is essentially saying as a little toddler trauma therapist is that we should encounter mythological dissociative parts in pieces until they can be realized as a whole, such that the human condition may be accurately perceived and met with courage and forthrightness, just as he's learning to sleep by himself and confront being afraid of the dark. Since when is that not therapy? Since when is that not the point of why we do this? The therapist may say, well, I don't see Faust and Mephistopheles in my clients and so on. This is perhaps due to a neglect of the use of dreams in this work. I don't think entirely, but I had the privilege of speaking to Dr. William Domhoff, who is one of the world's foremost experts on dream studies, Professor Emeritus at UC Santa Cruz. Um, he was kind enough to speak to me uh, extensively, and uh, I hoped to have him on this podcast, but he said, you know what? There is no research in the entire world on the uh, relationship of dreams and complex trauma. I was able to confirm this with a consultee of mine who searched JSTOR extensively with her husband, and um, unfortunately, that was the truth. Dr. Domhoff told me, don't bother with a PhD. That's what I was thinking about. He suggested that instead I pursue guerrilla action. He's a, a classic, uh, classic um, iconoclast. So if you disagree or agree with the relevance of archetypes, mythology, and dreams in the, tr in the treatment of complex trauma, I hope you do so very strongly. Uh, Dr. Gottman, I happen to be a licensed marriage and family therapist and studied him. Dr. Gottman said that we need more emotion, not less, and that the problem is not argument, but a lack of argument. An abandonment of argument predicts divorce, which he calls stonewalling, one of the four horsemen of the marriage apocalypse. Let's not imitate what we're trying to treat with the dissociation and divorce of psychotherapeutic modalities. Thanks for listening. As usual, our outro music and intro music is provided by the band Cracked Machine in support of increased global access to effective trauma therapy. And in a very relevant manner, the music today is from their album Call of the Void, which is 10 songs that are representations of interpretations of dragons from various global mythologies. We'll see you next time on the Dissociative Table Podcast.